So, we are very fortunate to have Michael Cote, who is going to talk to us about the monolithic transformation. And if you go on to um, hashtag Agile Scotland, or if you can follow Agile Scotland on Twitter, you will actually see a link to some of Michael's work, and he uh, and, and also the current book that he's uh, working on just now, which is, what is it, uh, Bottlenecks? Bottlenecks? Oh, the, the Business Bottlenecks. Business Bottlenecks. And you we can, we can start blaming someone else for our problems. <laughs> excellent, excellent. So, without further ado, over to you, Michael. Thank you. Well, hello. Uh, oh, thank you. I have a lot of expectations to live up to now. You've already applauded, so uh, my work here is done. Uh, well, as mentioned, that was, that was more of an intro than I usually get, so thank you very much. Uh, I'm, I'm Michael Cote. I work for uh, Pivotal. Uh, as you can see. I'll just give you a brief overview of what Pivotal does, not annoy you too much, and then we'll get on to the, the meat of things. But what I want to give you a presentation about is what, uh, I don't know, I think I've, I've studied inadvertently for most of my career, but definitely for the, for the past five years or so. I was a programmer for about 10 years or so. Uh, oh, also, this is like the second bleeding heart liberal Texan you get to be entertained by if you were in here uh, last time. I'm, I was born in Austin, and I lived there all my life until August of last year when I moved to Amsterdam. Uh, of all places. It's very flat there, nice and cool, except for last week. Um, anyhow, so uh, I was a programmer for about 10 years, and after that I became an industry analyst for a little firm called Red Monk. And then uh, I had a kid, and my wife informed me I needed to get a grown-up job, so I went to go work for Dell for a couple of years in corporate strategy and M&A, which is kind of a weird shift from programming, I guess. If you ever get the chance to work with MB, in, excuse me, you won't understand my joke if my throat doesn't work. There we go. <clears throat> if you ever get a chance to work for MBAs, you should definitely do that. You'll learn how to use pivot tables, good dry cleaners to go to, how to run meetings and be in meetings, very effective. Anyway, after that, I was an industry analyst, and I've been at Pivotal for about 10 years, where I focus a lot on talking with uh, people, mostly in large organizations, who, to summarize it very simplistically, want to improve the way they do software, right? Uh, that's mo mostly what the focus is. And as, as I'll go over at the start, a large part of what they're trying to shift from is the old, um, I don't know, to use the cliche term waterfall, but old annual cycles of doing things, uh, having big upfront requirements, and get to a point, as I'll, I'll mention, where they're focusing more on a weekly basis, if not more frequently, on what people are doing with their software and improving it. And the reason they're interested in that, uh, as, as I'll get into, is... Not only because it's like fun for programmers, uh, right? I always enjoyed doing things rapidly, unless I was in a lazy mood when I was a programmer, which maybe that was more than I'd like to admit. Uh, but uh, really, the organizations that you're writing the software for, whether they're private companies who are, I guess, for-profit or non-profit type of organizations, they really nowadays, I think we finally have people who are running those companies who aren't like computer nerds, who are like software, I get it. They don't like print out all their emails, and they understand that like software can be used as a core tool to run their business. Uh, and so therefore, they're looking to improve the way they do their software. So this is a, uh, a, a kind of a long 90-minute summary of a lot of what's in this book here uh, called Monolithic Transformation. It's kind of a joke when I came up with the title because everyone was talking about breaking down the monolith into microservices. And uh, it's not anything technical. It's all about organizational stuff, right? It's uh, not really about software or hardware. It's about what I like to think of as meatware. Uh, you, me, and all the other people and the process around things. And thanks to my company who sponsors it, you can get a, a free copy of that if you want. 
And also, as mentioned, I have a new book that I'm working on. Uh, I'm always interested in input on that. But we'll, we'll uh, jump into that. So as mentioned, I just want to tell you what Pivotal does real quick. We do a bunch of software. If you're a developer and you want to run your software over across Java and all sorts of languages you can use, you can look that up later. They pay my bills, all sorts of things like that. Look at those cool logos we have. Enjoy Pivotal. So uh, just to give some detail, like why are people interested in software right now? And uh, I sort of accidentally used this framing uh, a, a year or so ago, and, and, and it seemed to stick. And that is, uh, you know, fear of robot dogs. I don't know if you've seen all these, like, West Coast, Silicon Valley mindset stuff. Being from Texas, I find it kind of obnoxious to talk about the Silicon Valley mindset and wanting to be like tech companies and things like that. But that seems to be what people respond to. So, you know, I'm not a Funkin' Wagnall type who's going to, like, tell you what words should mean. I'll go along with slang and stuff. But what's been happening, as I'm sure all of you know over the past few years, is companies like this, right? And, and I think it's always good when you hear this idea of a tech company to ask, like, do they actually sell software? Because if they don't, they're not actually a tech company. They're a company that is using software and the ability to do it well to really change and improve the way they do their business. And generally across industries, uh, you know, disruption is a weird term, but like there are not only new competitors who are coming in and doing things, but more importantly, more optimistically, there's the opportunity to improve the way that you're doing business, right? I don't know if uh, a couple years ago I signed up for life insurance uh, in the States when I was still there. And I think I had to like print something out and scan it in. And it was this bizarre process, uh, you know, of, of doing something simple like uh, doing life insurance. Now, also, a nurse had to come visit me in my home and all sorts of strange things like that. But there's all sorts of processes that clearly, uh, especially for folks like y'all, like, you know, why don't, isn't there an app for this? And more importantly, again, why people are interested in it is you can actually change and improve the way you do your business and make it more interesting and useful. And also on the, uh, the government side, uh, you can definitely improve the way the government functions to deliver services, right? As another example, uh, I had to uh, travel a lot. And unfortunately, when I go from uh, Amsterdam, I go to London a lot. And for some reason, going into London is fine when I go over the uh, little channel there and just go through the machine. But the Dutch love to stamp my passport. I don't really understand because I'm a resident there, but they, they just love stamping it. Uh, so I had to get, get my passport renewed because they just filled up my passport. And to do that, you got to, again, fill out a form, do a picture perfectly, get it printed out. you got to go down to the consulate there. It's this crazy process, very analog, right? And, you know, you would think, like, uh, why don't I just, like, upload a picture so I don't have to, like, mail one in, fill out this form online, and maybe that's it? I mean, I, I guess it couldn't be that great for getting a passport. But you see over and over again, there's the chance to uh, improve our life if you can get a little bit of that smell of the robot dogs going there. So given that, uh, back when I was an analyst, I always liked to baseline where we were. And this gets, I'll just go quickly through this chart stuff. Being a former analyst, if I don't have a few charts in my presentation, I just like cold stop and I can't proceed. I need them to uh, feel comfortable. But what I, what I, the way I frame it is, if, you, if you're familiar with the Standish group, they're the, uh, the greatest pessimists of programming that you'll ever come across. And they basically chart, uh, the way they like to talk about it is failure. Uh, you could also think about it as charting success. But over the past 25 years, they've tried to figure out from surveys how we're doing uh, with programming. And uh, to read the chart for you, what this shows is not only are we not like that great, like we kind of deliver half of the time, like, you know, you can imagine if you, uh, if, you know, you used your car 
uh, or your credit card, and it worked half of the time. I'm not sure you would call that a success. Uh, so, but even more depressingly, like we're kind of like stuck at this level, right? We haven't really changed or improved in aggregate that much. Now, despite that, what I've been lucky to see over the past five or so years is not only those tech companies with robot dogs, but plenty of, um, and I mean this in the most affectionate way possible, big, boring companies uh, like insurance companies, banks, and uh, people who work on like elevators and things like that. They've actually been able to improve the way they do their software, kind of get over this hump here of uh, not delivering uh, software, being successful in a majority of, of the cases. Now, I think the reason, as, as I'll get into with the rest of this, that they're able to do this is they have a different understanding of that same data, right? So this is me trying to be optimistic and a little overly clever. And that is, I think most people who are working on software and most people who set up their organization to do software and are delivering it, they have a slightly incorrect notion of what software means, right? And what they think, uh, as I'm sure maybe none of your organizations are like this, but when you're talking with your friends and they're upset because their organizations are dysfunctional, y'all are probably all fantastic. Uh, you can understand their problems. Uh, but, you know, you have this notion that if you, we go back to the other Standish chart, that what this is basically tracking is if we've delivered on budget, we've delivered the features that we wanted uh, on schedule, you know, the old iron triangle from the days back when I had no gray hair that we used to talk about. Um, but I think if you, if you really understand the way software is done, very few of those three things ever are known well enough ahead of time to kind of rate yourself on succeeding at them, right? So I would almost say that this chart, the way to think about it is different, that, uh, that what, what was ranked as success previously is actually people just getting really lucky at doing their software, right? So they planned out the, the benchmarks they wanted to hit, the budget, the features they were going to do, and they just lucked out that they were right. Whereas the rest of the software that didn't deliver on time, was over budget, and didn't deliver on all the features, they actually have discovered the true nature of software, right? Like software is this very fickle thing that you can't really plan out and do ahead of time. And so uh, what, I'm in, what I'm interested in, and I think the core, big, gigantic, top-level thing that organizations who are improving how they're doing software by focusing on the right understanding of software, or a more helpful understanding of software, is they're systematically going to this idea of shifting from a, uh, a service delivery, or some people will say project delivery. I have a background in systems management, so I always think of service delivery. But they're moving from a service delivery mindset of software, that idea of predefining a set of features, predefining a budget, predefining a um, the other one, a schedule, and sort of like factory-like delivering on it and then keeping it supporting. Uh, supported, and instead they're focusing on a product delivery way of doing things. And I grew up, so to speak, in vendors, software vendors all my life, so it's kind of like, it takes me a, a long time to understand the opposite of a product delivery thing, because when you're at a software vendor, that is your business, to deliver a product, so you get obsessed with product delivery. But just to give you a really brief overview of what this shift is, I mean, I still encounter many organizations who have a service delivery way of doing things. And this is a representation from the old one of the companies I used to work with, uh, BMC Software. Uh, so if you ever used any of the software that I wrote, uh, I have to leave to catch a flight, so I won't be able to apologize to you afterwards. Uh, so I'll apologize to you now. Sorry about that. Uh, but, you know, the way that this goes about, uh, and as with all of this kind of stuff, the bad things that end up happening with the process, it's not like that was intended, right? Like, no one sets out to do some sort of IT process and they're like, 
you know what we should do? We should make a thing that no one likes, right? They obviously think that what they're putting in place is going to be great. And, you know, they have a circle as well and so forth and so on. But what ends up happening with the service delivery mindset or a project mindset is that you do have this finite moment where you drop the thing off, the chunk of software or the infrastructure that you set up. And in theory, you'll sort of be there to kind of like take care of it and evolve it. But that doesn't really happen, right? Like it kind of gets locked down. It changes much more slowly. You essentially use like a ticketing desk or a service desk or whatever a, a change advisory board is. I use all of these different barriers to basically slow down changing uh, the, the, product, the project you've delivered, which is unfortunate because what that means is you have essentially like one chance to get it right. Uh, and it, it's very expensive to evolve it. And then you throw in all sorts of other things like uh, if you have this finite project delivered uh, from outside of the IT department, the perspective is like we just need to run this thing, kind of like an air conditioning unit, something uh, us Texans are very familiar with. Uh, and so basically, if I'm just running this thing, I want to run it as cheaply as possible. And so you can cut costs down and get rid of people. And the next thing you know, you're like me, like having to fill out a piece of paper to renew a passport, right? Like you're not constantly evolving the thing. And again, nothing against, uh, you know, ITIL or ITIL or anything like that. The intention was not to get to this point, but the failing of processes like that is it doesn't bake into making sure you, uh, uh, you know, you're not lazy, right? Like that's always an important part of a process is to force you to actually evolve it instead of uh, ending what you're doing. Now, typically, you know, those projects are like a year or 18 months, or in the case of most militaries, 10 to 12 years, to sort of go from an idea to actually someone using it, which is another very annoying thing if you want to incrementally improve the software. But a product mindset, and it's all essentially based on, uh, you know, an agile way of thinking uh, to do things with a little bit of like DevOps think of rapidity in there. But it more follows uh, something y'all are probably very familiar with, the uh, scientific method. Uh, if you ever come back home to the States, you should evangelize the idea of the scientific method to us. We can use all the help we can get. But essentially, when working on software, if you remember that kind of reorientation of the uh, Standish failure, right? That like actual software is this unknown, mysterious, weird thing that's not going to conform to what you thought it was going to be, essentially. Uh, what you have is an unknown set of problems. You often don't really even know exactly what the problem is, as we'll get into with a couple of examples. So you need a systematic, disciplined way of exploring the unknown and coming up with, we could call them theories in the scientific sense, but we could call them truths or things that actually work. Uh, and you need a way of discovering what those are and verifying them and making them better. And so this loop, and there's all sorts of ways of describing it, the, I, think, I think the lean startup sort of uh, mindset and then lean whatever word you want to put after that if you want to capitalize the L or lowercase it, whatever you prefer. I've never seen anyone uppercase all the letters, so that might be a new improvement. Uh, but it essentially goes through the cycle of first we come up with a theory of what will solve a problem. And I'll give you an example uh, very quickly. Uh, and with software, our lab, what we do all we can do really is write code. I guess you could be really clever and be like, we could also delete code, woo, uh, and you know, stuff like that, but whatever. You manipulate code, uh, whether that's deleting it, writing it, changing it, or whatever. Uh, and the important part that most people forget is you, you should see if not only the code compiles and passes tests, but like, do people use it to accomplish some end that you wanted? So the important part is to actually put it in front of people, put it in production, to use uh, Opsy terms, 
and observe people using it and see if it satisfies the theory of what you had. Does it actually, did you come up with like uh, the best way to print this page is like to put this button up here. Do people actually use that button and print the page or does no one actually use that? And kind of a um, uh, anecdotal thing I think most everyone's familiar with is, is, I never know if this is actually true, but no one ever uses the advanced search option. Right, like everyone in in the tech world is always like, we've got to have an advanced search option with like, we should put some regex in there and maybe even some set and knock and all this stuff, and it'll be awesome. And it's only going to take me three months to implement that. But then you you put it in production and no one ever uses it. Right, you had this idea that that uh, that they would do it. So that's an idea of something you could test. Right, like we should see if people are going to actually use advanced search by actually seeing what people do, and oftentimes uh, they don't. Um, so, as you can imagine, you come up with a theory, as I was saying, you measure the results after you've coded it, and then there's actually observing people going through it. And if you solved your theory, then that's great, you get to solve another problem. Uh, and if not, you constantly uh, keep working on that. Now, the other key difference with this loop is people go through it, I always recommend like a weekly basis. Some people who probably have a much more relaxed life go through every two weeks or so. Uh, but there are some organizations who somehow figure out how to scope down uh, to do it on a, uh, a daily basis, right? Doing small little changes. Like one of my, uh, one of my um, uh, son's uh, classmates, his father, that was a long thing, who's actually from New Zealand of all places that lives in Amsterdam. He works at uh, Booking.com and he recently moved to the experimentation thing. And I don't know how this is possible. I didn't, we were at a birthday party, so I didn't want to like work uh, with him. But he said they run like, I don't know, something like 4,000 tests a week. Uh, of how they arrange the UI and things they do. And I was kind of doing the math in my head, and I was like, I don't even understand how you would come up with 4,000 tests in a week. So they must automate it somehow. But the point is, they can do all of these little incremental tests uh, with the theory of, like, you know, you should book more trips, and always driving towards that result, and they're constantly testing and refining it. So I'll give you a, a much uh, simpler, uh, kind of complete uh, example to go with the advanced search and the booking and the other one. And this is the case of, uh, thankfully, uh, when I'm like in France, I have to apologize that I can't really pronounce anything in French, despite my name. But y'all seem really friendly. Probably have the same problems I do. Are you ready? Here's, here's my one French thing. Orange. <laughs> there you go. Merci beau cups, as we say back in Texas. So Orange is a, a telco, among other things. And this is an example from their uh, kind of medium-sized business where you have someone owning a shop. And they had, and, and this whole example is to kind of orient you to the big picture of why you want to improve software and why you bother to get better at doing Agile and why you bother to get better at doing design and so forth and so on. So from the business side, totally outside of IT, uh, they have these people who basically buy internet from them and run their employees' phones, right? And they pay on a monthly basis and they're small businesses, right? Like it's not like they got a ton of money laying around. Uh, now when something goes wrong, if rebooting the router doesn't solve all your problems, uh, the way previously that you would have to solve that problem is you would call someone up. Now, I don't know if you've used the phone in the past five or ten years, but it's really annoying. Using the phone is terrible, and calling a business that you pay money to is even worse, right? Now, on the business side, it's also bad because it employs humans who, turns out, it's probably your experience as well, are very expensive and fickle, right? So, essentially, you don't want call centers. That's sort of from a business vantage point. It has really bad customer uh, experience and service. It's very expensive. It just seems kind of ridiculous. So uh, they wanted to replace that with a piece of software. And their first idea of what the software was, again, the core problem is like, 
how do these small business owners manage the relationship they have with us from looking up bills to checking how things are doing, so forth and so on, right? This is, think, if you think about it, the, the storefront, this is what these, these people think of as Orange, is this kind of interaction. Now, uh, if, they, you know, if, if they're like most people, especially back when I did code, you think about all the fun- features and functionality you would have in this storefront, right? Looking at bills, checking on things, seeing exciting offers that, that you might be interested in, setting up your password. And you do that kind of, uh, depending on if you think about roots or branches or whatever, you do that kind of like reverse tree sort of thing where there's some click thing over here with a plus sign and you click it and expands out all the options you have and so forth and so on. The problem was if, if you put that in front of people, they have to dig through all of that, that UI stuff, right? So the theory would be like, let's put a reverse tree up there because they want to find out what feature they want, just like a, a call tree, right? Like you want to go through and select the thing that you want. But because they took this, this small batch approach, that cycle, what they discovered uh, after deploying the code and observing people doing it is that really there were only two things that in the majority of cases that these business owners wanted, right? And again, what's key here is they were able to get their software out and they had this discipline process of coming up with a small enough theory to test in each release. And they found out there were these two things. One, they, they don't even want to know all of their bills or have a drop down. They only want to know their current bill and their last bill, right? Because again, think about these businesses. They don't have a ton of money if you're like a fruit stand, right? You get a very small amount of money. And you really want predictable costs each month. So you don't want to like blow out your profit on your phone bill, essentially. So they showed those two bills so you would know about that. But then also with their employees, again, uh, they wanted to know like, so am I going to have a big unexpected bill at the end because someone's been like using up our data plan to like watch uh, football while they're delivering all of our food. Like my, my uh, car driver was last night. It's a little disconcerting that he was watching TV while we were driving, but obviously I got here safe. Uh, so, um, you know, so they put that, going through that cycle, they discovered these things and they put these two features front and center, almost as if those are the main things that you do. And what they found, the, the sort of how this boils up, not only to usage of the software, but how it becomes a large success outside of IT for the organization. And also hopefully joyful for us because, like, we actually write useful software. Again, I won't be able to apologize uh, after the session for software I've worked on. I've learned a lot since then. Uh, but they found out that about 50% of their, their, the store owners started using this application moving from the phone system, right? So I think that it's important to think about cases like this, right? Because it's fun to say, like, oh, look, we can, like, scale up and scale down and we can really, like, optimize this and, like, Instead of having to edit all these, like, 10 YAML files, you can only edit this one YAML file that I devised and made a thing around. But instead of just thinking about the technical achievements you have, it's always good to focus on that actual end, and if you'll pardon the phrase, business outcome. I don't know a better phrase for it. Maybe you all have some idea. But essentially, a person sitting at a phone or a computer or your software doing something, and to a certain extent, not even realizing that they, they're doing it, right? Just going through it in a uh, happy, uh, productive way. So how do organizations get to this point, right? Like if you remember the, uh, the 25 years of failure or so, uh, you know, moving to the point where they can have that kind of success, whereas in the case of uh, Orange, they did that in about nine months from nothing to thinking about it which uh, is incredibly fast. And, you know, there's probably some holidays in there. I don't think they did it over August, maybe after everyone came back. Uh, but, you know, you've got to have some time off. Um, and it's not like they're going to work like 60 hours a week or anything nicely. Uh, so the way that they do this uh, is 
there's a, there's many things that I'll go over with the rest of the, uh, the the talk, and that is it starts with like any great software thing, you've got to re-architect the way you're going about doing stuff. Now, I'm sure you all have heard about the siloed organization and the functional org and so forth and so on, but this is the end state of what things end up looking like, and I'm going to use this as sort of a, a table of contents, but also a, a visual to kind of look over it. So, we still have the uh, the business up top there. Uh, I wasn't really sure how to represent government, so I used that, uh, I guess that could be a court or like some Romans, but that's supposed to be government. Um, and so we still have that going on, and that's the, this area up here is the focus of that business bottleneck stuff I've been doing. There's still, it turns out, a lot of management, and even even just, you just wait for it, enterprise architects. Don't, don't go too crazy about that. They show up, and you might even have... You know, you can't call them project managers anymore because we're working on products, but like, figure out a name for that. But there's still a huge amount of coordination that goes on. And then the major shift that occurs is thinking, again, if you're going to be product-oriented, thinking in terms of product teams, uh, which we'll get into, that have full authority over the actual products that, that they're working on. Not to mention that you've divided up the organization into the, a product-oriented thing, right? And, you know, unless you bank at uh, the uh, global mattress banking system, you're probably familiar with the various applications you have with the bank. So I always like to use them. But you can think about how you slice up the teams from an end user's perspective, a, a person's perspective. And then finally, to support all of this, uh, there's, there's <laughs> all of the operations people and how they orient around how do we make it so that you can actually focus on this and what kind of, how do we change the way we do things in operations to be also product-centric instead of being uh, service desk or help ticket-centric. So let's start uh, at the bottom. And, you know, I'm not making any judgment about the bottom versus the top or whatever. You can, just like a, a map of the globe, you can orient it whatever way you want to conform with uh, how you think spatial uh, value judgments work. Uh, but it is kind of the, what you need to start with uh, to, in order to build up more. So we'll start with a little bit of, uh, of, of history. Uh, and that is, uh, and I mo mostly go over this to point out that you can't really think about doing DevOps, if you will, and being done with it, because you start, you start to encounter some limitations. And just to give you the very brief overview, back when this was coming out, I was always interested in this. You know, there are companies who are competing with each other when there was more than just one or two social media companies, or whatever we call them. And basically, they were competing by one working. That was always key to actually uh, work. That's always the forgotten user story of software. Uh, and then two, by adding new features more rapidly and more better than their competitors could. So they had to release their software very quickly, which was not really the norm at the time because as any good operations person knows, uh, essentially uh, when, when you uh, are deploying software, what happens is you have these people called developers and their job is to bring down production uh, whenever they release <laughs> the software. So you have this mindset of like, well, my job as an operations person is to keep production up and I, you know had some education, if not a full-blown, crazy university degree, and I can do the logic here, I should never deploy software and production will stay up. So again, you try to slow that down. So a lot of what, what follows from DevOps is how do we break through that barrier, right? And that's where you get fo focusing on continuous integration and delivery and focusing on even wackier things like having as few branches in your code as possible. But more importantly, it's, it's more about, as the name would imply, having your developers understand what it means to run their code in production, having them know a little bit how networking works, and especially nowadays, how to do a distributed application. 
there was this time way back when in, in the Java enterprise days where everyone sort of like knew how to like uh, move their hands around as if they were doing a distributed uh, application and somehow that got lost in the 2000s and so that had to be refreshed how we write these applications to be distributed. And then also on the operations side, what they learned is that the running state of an application is itself a program and therefore you should treat it like a programmer would. Running it through tests and uh, trying to make it as uh, sort of immutable as possible, make it so it's not customized and handcrafted, and even doing things like uh, checking in and at some point automating it so you touch it as little as possible. Now, that was great. That actually sped things up, added some stability. Uh, it's very fun, makes all these reports and uh, all sorts of things. Lots of debates. I'm always interested in how things are cased. There was lots of debates over, is it DevOps with an underbar, DevOps all lowercase, or do you camel case it, or what do you do? Uh, I love a discussion like that, much better than tabs. But nowadays, uh, I think there's this, this barrier that, that doing DevOps only on its own is reached, and why operations become something slightly different. And that is, if you look at this survey, uh, it shows you the sort of average of how, how often we can release software. Now, just to give you a little meta side note, uh, they often say don't have busy things uh, in presentations, and definitely use big type, and maybe don't even use charts. But there's a great rhetorical thing you can do here where like, you're probably staring at this chart. Maybe you're not listening to me, so I don't have to do that good of a job at the moment. I can relax, think about things, what I'm going to do this weekend. But also, I can tell you exactly how I want you to read this chart instead of you making your own decision about it. And it seems very authoritative. So use charts uh, if you want to do that. But if you look at this, what this is showing you is this is an overlay uh, from 2018 going back to 2014, the uh, release cadences that we have. And what you'll notice is like, oh, we're doing great. We can release every quarter in average. But then if you remember back to the standish thing, what we should get depressed about or optimistic that there's room for improvement uh, is that uh, we're stuck, right? Like we can't get past this quarterly thing. We've been doing that for a long time. Uh, and I think, you know, what I've noticed, and this is, gets directly to what operations people, the mindset they have, and what they start to tool around, how they reorient themselves, the process that they take, how they change, how they operate, is uh, this, this great excerpt from a uh, UC Berkeley uh, presentation. I don't know how that change ended up being Berkeley instead of Berkeley, but what are you going to do? Uh, and, and this, amongst talking about serverless and things, this really highlights what I end up seeing anecdotally a lot is... If you imagine like you're doing your software on a weekly deploy, that's, you know, as any programmer will tell you, any problem you give them, oh, that'll just take a few lines of code. I could uh, do that over the weekend if you would just stop telling me about, you know, HR stuff and sending me to meetings uh, and buy me coffee for free. And maybe if you had lunch so I didn't have to spend two hours doing that. Developers are always telling you things are easy if you just make their life easier, which is a bit of a tautology. But for those few lines of code that you have, if you think about it, you end up having to do all this other code that has nothing to do with moving pixels on the screen, right? And this often manifests itself as one of my friend's jokes about in being a YAML coder, right? Like I used to be a, a UI coder or a backend coder, but now I'm a YAML programmer. I'm always having to rearrange this stuff and set up the configuration. So this is a large part of the, uh, the boon and then the curse that something like DevOps has brought to us is we have this notion of a uh, full stack developer, whatever that means. But if we're having our development teams doing operations more and more, and we're treating production as, as part of our program, then we got to program it, right? And the complexity of running your stuff in production is often much more complicated than actually writing your code and doing the application code. And that starts to consume a huge amount of the work that you end up doing. 
And I think that's a large part of what stalled us out at, at a quarterly release uh, of, of putting things out. But it is definitely possible, as I was talking about, uh, these large, boring companies that many of us work at and uh, we enjoy so much, the, uh, the fruits of their labor and efforts, to actually get past this barrier. And the pattern that I've seen emerge beyond just sort of, you know, you can go get like a box of uh, like effective DevOps in the DevOps handbook and you can have an hour meeting and you can just kind of throw them out at people and be like, I'll see you next year. You should go transform. Uh, it doesn't, doesn't really work so well. But beyond that kind of uh, sloppy way of doing things, there's a couple of patterns, uh, one core pattern that I've seen people going through. And this is a big mind shift uh, for operations people. Having written code for ops people, I'm, I fancy myself somewhat familiar with them and being an industry analyst about uh, systems management. And in the same way, if you remember to the Orange case and that small batch loop, the goal of that is to be product-centric, right? And by product, what we mean is there's a person or a customer using it, and you should you know, pay attention to them and observe if you're improving their life. And operations, similarly, uh, it's almost like a, a, a recursive type of thing. Operations also takes on this mindset, right? And if you think about it, their customer are those, those development teams, those product teams, right? Their end user are the people who are writing software using their stack, deploying it on that stack, and there's also some other people, depending on what you care about, you know, governance and things like that. But their customer is not really like the data center or the process. It's actually these application teams on top writing software. So once they take that mentality and they think, and therefore we should structure everything we do around satisfying those customers, they end up thinking about their, what they're doing, a platform or their stack or their cloud, whatever you call the big chunk of software that's your runtime environment. They think of that as a product, and they start to orient the same way that the, uh, the product teams would, right? So they end up having a product manager who's basically figuring out the, uh, for them, features are things like, you know, a database or, uh, you know, a build pipeline. They're much bigger than just like how to print something. But they end up prioritizing what those features look like release to release and thinking about if we put this new, if we put like a, uh, you know, people keep telling me I need to install Kafka uh, on our platform and is like, is that really going to solve their problem? And is that the best thing that we do? Is that the number one thing we should focus on or like should we focus on something else? So in the same way that a product manager would think about the features that they're putting in and prioritizing them, you do this in, in an operational uh, sort of context, which is much different than how operation stuff usually prioritizes uh, the work that they go through. And then next, on this team, uh, there doesn't send, as, as we'll see, designers play a huge role in an application team. There's not so much design uh, oriented here. I guess there actually is at least one person uh, in Pivotal who works on some stuff like this, and she is a designer for the command line tool, which sounds awesome. Right? I've never really heard of that. I don't know if she hangs out with the other designers, but uh, she must have an obscure skill. Um, but you also have not only people who know how to operate uh, the code, but you in the, the platform, but you end up having people who know how to maybe literally program it, but also kind of assemble together a product. And again, these engineers have the mind, these platform engineers have the mindset of we're building a product. I'm not just responsible for like, you know, clearing out the caches every now and then or telling these developers why I can't put their database changes into place, right? Like they are thinking about how do I build this and is it viable? And the same way that a developer would think about how, how am I focusing on building this, this product? So 
the first job that, that these, uh, thinking about it from a platform, uh, from a product perspective that these teams go through, and again, this is another big shift from the way operations people usually uh, operate, is they think about, all right, my customers, again, are developers. So the first thing I'm going to think about is what do my developers need, right? Like, what is sort of like, you could think about it in programming terms, like a layer of abstraction. Like, what's this layer I need to provide to them? When they compile their code, what does that look like and what are they deployed into? Like, what, what responsibilities do they have in the platform? So the first thing these teams go through, and, and I think arguably uh, the most important thing for the first year or so of doing this is to think about what, what is this layer of abstraction we provide? What is the, the, uh, the, like you have to pick this essentially. And you go through this analysis, and this takes a little bit of time, but uh, this is from uh, Rabobank in the Netherlands, but it's a, it's a good example. And this is a very confusing chart because the good is up on the left. Good's also supposed to be, always supposed to be up on the right. But I don't want to change someone else's slide. I should talk to them about this. Uh, but there's essentially kind of four layers of, of abstraction we have for developer uh, product teams, right? Like you can deploy VMs like we've done back in my day, as it were. We didn't have VMs. We had physical down here, which is very fun. Uh, but you can deploy to VMs. You can, of course, deploy to containers. You can deploy to a, uh, a platform as a service, kind of containerized uh, sort of like distributed applications. Or you can have functional programming or serverless things. And the operations team at Rabo went through a lot of work, not only to sort of think about and whiteboard what developers needed, but they would actually take a couple of developer teams and do some proofs of concepts of this, right? So again, think about that small batch loop, right? They actually took some developers and said, all right, we're going to deliver on each of these and like, let's see what works best. Our theory is containers would be awesome, right? So let's see if that actually is a good way of doing things. Or our theory is doing everything serverless would be great. And they go through that cycle to discover uh, what's going on. And just somewhere between serverless and containers, they found this, uh, this sweet spot. And this is what they've ended up delivering as, as a platform. And as you can see, uh, the precision of the number of cases where this, this layer of abstraction was good, which uh, if you can't read it, is 84.962%. That's a little Dutch joke right there. Uh, it's obviously a made-up number. Uh, so it's probably more like 84.96. I don't know about that, too. Uh, but essentially, in the majority of cases, that's what ended up being productive for their customers, and that's the kind of platform that they ended, deliver, ended up delivering. So that's the first important thing that you see operations people going through. And, you know, you can choose whatever platform, whatever stack of infrastructure, however packaging up works for your organization. But the important part is to apply that small batch loop to it, like Rabobank did, and discover what actually uses. Instead of just kind of like prescribing like, I don't know, use this ESB uh, because we can run it or whatever or because we have it. So the other thing uh, that, that becomes important, and this is taken most uh, sort of most best, written up in the uh, site reliability engineering or SRE work. Uh, but the, the thing that they do after establishing that platform, right? So the end goal, again, of, of your platform as a product team is to focus on uh, a product uh, of your platform, as the name would imply, but your customers and figuring out what they need and uh, giving that to them and changing features and prioritizing that, uh, which means there's all of this unvaluable work to use sort of lean thinking about it or waste. Uh, mostly around configuring things and requesting resources and waiting for your outsourcer to actually create a server for you. But there's all this wait time and waste in the system. And the next thing after picking a platform that these teams spend an, an insane amount of time on 
is to, again, use SRE terms, is removing toil from the system. So this is an example from uh, Daimler, uh, which I've only recently learned how to pronounce uh, correctly. I think I did a good job there. Uh, but, you know, they, they, they use a tool that most people do when they're uh, doing toil uh, reduction. That is to just sort of chart out every single thing you need to do to essentially deploy one line of code. From thinking like, we should change the print button, this year's colors are a light green, whereas last year they used to be a dark green. So we need to deploy that one line of code. And from me saying that, what's every single thing that needs to happen? And you can think of that as a value stream or just a chart or whatever. And most of the time what organizations find is, for example here, that there's this wait time. Like for a, for a developer even to get the infrastructure they need to start testing, they've got to fill out this form and then we got to get around to doing it and like give them the server. And so they're basically not doing anything. They're doing what I used to call research uh, while they're waiting for things to happen, which is a good way to start a new career, write a bunch of blog posts and get the attention of industry analysts instead of writing the pagination framework. Uh, so you can use your research time. Uh, to expand your abilities or just catch up on what your friends are up to nowadays. But you go through and you systematically find this waste and you figure out a way to get rid of it, right? In this case, uh, you know, with most toil, what it amounts to is changing the policy of what you're doing. A lot of the times it means um, having your operations people get closer to doing the work instead of delegating to someone else, but really just automating the way things work. And thankfully, with all the great cloud stuff that's out there nowadays, there's a huge amount of this waste that you can reduce. There's all sorts of things that can be automated and made into a, a self-service way, but it's not always widely used. And so this idea of removing all these manual processes and waste from the process, that becomes kind of the second priority that this team has. Because until you free up all of that time, you're going to once again backslide into that notion of hiding behind the ticket desk and wanting to slow things down and not wanting to speed up. And you're not going to be able to actually deliver a product and pay attention to what customers are doing and orient around that. And you end up getting very good efficiencies after a while. It's a lot of upfront work, but it's pretty much proven out over uh, exciting tech companies and you know boring, exciting companies, so to speak, that are not tech companies. They actually can put this in place. Uh, as optimistic as, as it ends up sounding. So you systematically think about how could we tackle uh, these, these wait times and these things that take a long time and remove them so we can reduce down the time it takes, at least from the operations perspective, to do things and allow our developers to uh, speed up and operate on their own. I always say developers, but, you know, I mean the product team, all the people focusing on it. So next, let's look at the, uh, the level that people uh, mostly focus on and how the end state of what that looks like and how people kind of get to that point and uh, what, what they focus on. So the, the operation side, right, they're focusing on speeding things up as much as possible, uh, ensuring that they're not requiring a bunch of governance and things like that, and really automating the, the platform that they have. But then also studying and satisfying the, the, the needs that their customers, the, the product teams have. So we'll look at this layer in the middle. Now, like I said, these product teams, uh, they end up focusing on uh, the end users or the end person's perspective, the customer or whatever you want to call it. Uh, someone using, I guess it could be a robot if it's like an API thing or something. But they end up focusing on people using these and the tasks they're trying to accomplish. And they not only structurally reorient around that, but they reorient how they think about their software to deliver uh, on those actual uh, those products. And I don't know if this is an accurate breakout. I imagine that a mortgage approval process has more than just one team uh, focusing on it, and maybe even transfers, but it's, you know, just kind of gives you a notion of, of what it looks like. So 
the first thing uh, to realize with these these teams uh, is actually let me go over this first. So you have you have these these roles in the team. So let's look at the team composition and. This is, this is kind of a, a bit of an evolution from the kind of DevOps state of the art, right? Like in, in the DevOps world, one, we're all nice to each other uh, and we're very supportive and we make sure that uh, we're good people. I always liked how, you know, every process, make sure that we refocus on like not being a jerk, which unfortunately needs to happen uh, very frequently. But that's, that's a uh, fantastic side of that. But when it comes to roles... I think what most people have in their head is we're going to have developers and maybe some operations-minded people and whatever a lead is and a manager. So there's a few things like that. But what I see in these product teams increasingly are these three roles kind of divided out by number. In it. So we still have people who write code, engineers, developers, coders, whatever you want to call yourself. Uh, and you know I think we'll always have developers uh, because I was thinking about this. You got, uh, you got your AI and your machine learning and robots and programmers are going to have to program that. They're going to have to write the code for it. And programmers are generally at least smart when it comes to consequences of things. So like they probably will never code their way out of a job. Uh, so mysteriously it'll just never work. We can't quite get it right. I don't know why. Uh, so we'll probably always have these programmers down here. And they not only write code, but they also input into the, uh, the viability of doing something, right? So they give a, they know their, their job is to know the technology and implement it and start to work with the team as a whole to say if something's actually possible and to kind of also go over potential technology uses they have, which now that I think of it, I never thought of this, but that's a huge change from what developers usually do. Like if you remember... Uh, the first thing they teach you in like second year uh, life of a developer is you don't get to tell people what you code and they don't get to tell you how to code it and that's the solid the, the compact that we have but at some point on this team the uh, the developers start to get a bigger role and they can talk about technologies to use and even potential features uh, that you would have involved so next the other role uh, that if, if if you're from a software vendor it makes a lot of sense but most organizations don't have this, is you have a product manager. And I kind of went over what a product manager did earlier, but in this context, to, to, to draw it out, there's a couple things, there's two important things they focus on. Uh, one is they focus on what's the reason that we're doing all of this, kind of the, the why and the business reason for doing it, who are the people who are doing this, and whenever we put a new release out, like, are we actually doing anything useful for them, uh, right? Like, or are we just kind of like having fun coding? So the product manager, from that standpoint, you can think of as like owners of fraught word, but they're the ones who are advocating the most for the product being good and, and satisfying someone's need and actually fitting into a, a notion of what the software should be doing. And then, and then next, uh, this is the other role that's hardest to find uh, for most, most organizations, and that's designers. Now, designers, they definitely tell you when it's time to go from serif to sans serif uh, with the time. And, uh, you know, if you're going to have a drop shadow, it's a flat button, all of these sorts of things. But as you can probably guess, more of what a designer tells you is they pay attention to the workflows that people go through. Even you can think about it as like the customer journeys and things like that. But their focus is that if I know the people using the software and I observe how they use it and I start to know what their problems are, my job is to design the best way that the software accomplishes that. Uh, and, and how should we orient things around that? What should we do? Even what are the problems that people are, are trying to solve with that? So these roles, and these teams tend to be like anywhere from four to 12 or so people. But these roles in, in the most uh, successful organizations I see, each team actually has these roles on it. 
and they're fully dedicated to this, right? They don't get sharded out to other teams. And then also, uh, to draw out something explicit, they not only operate autonomously, right? So they, you have a, a lots of automation from your platform team who allow them to do, to request their own resources and deploy things, but they also have a huge amount of ownership of the product, right? So they actually drive what's in the product, and they're the ones who own that product instead of doing the work for someone else, which really gets to that the uh, the, the cultural part of a lot of DevOps and Agile think where if you have a lot more passion and ownership and you actually care about the work that you're doing, generally uh, it ends up being much better. Unless there's many cases where you're a writer and you care a great deal about what you do and everyone else has no idea what you've just written. You just entertain yourself. But in an entertaining, I mean, an engineering thing, generally if you have lots of pride in your code and your craft and how you move pixels on the screen, uh, you're going to have much better results for it. I, I forgot to mention, the rule I use when it comes to uh, bathrooms is you should just go whenever you want to. I don't want to control your bodily fluids, so just do whatever you need. I will not be offended. Uh, have fun whenever you want, because I'll just keep talking straight until uh, she tells me to stop. Uh, <laughs> So feel free to go. Uh, there's a whole book you can get for free if you think you've missed something. So now, now let's go back to my, my misorder of thing, right? What's important when looking at these teams, uh, and, and I, I'm going over several things that are obvious, but over my 20 or so year career, I've realized that actually doing the obvious things are the hardest things possible, right? What are they, what's the saying? Like, they call it common sense because it's uncommon. It's probably phrased better than that. But I want to show you two things to kind of emphasize how much effort you need to put into actually doing agile practices and actually doing uh, software, right? It's not just like, a good idea, ha-ha, it's good for them, now we're not going to do it. Uh, and, and in fact, that people don't actually follow these practices too much. And this is an especially exciting chart. If you remember what I said about charts, I'm going to demonstrate it again. So this is a survey that uh, uh, basically Google commissioned, so it must be trustworthy, right? Um, and what you see here is there are two survey respondents, groups of them. There is what app developers say, and then also um, what executives say that they're doing. And it's fun to kind of look through this and see, like, one, you see that uh, there's a huge gap between the perception that executives have about what they're doing and what the application developers are actually doing, right? So that's a fun thing to, to, to conclude on, that there's this big gap between... Uh, what, what management thinks has, is happening, you know, when they throw out all those books, if it actually happened, and then what the practitioners are doing. And you can see the discrepancies here, right? Like, the first one's a little kind of weird to, to consider, given all the other ones. But you can see that th there's, there's uh, people are kind of spotty in, in how they're implementing things and if they think they're implemented. Now, to draw this out further, this is a bit of an out-of-date chart. But this is a survey, and it's... Um, uh, multiple years, not represented here. But it basically is asking the survey respondents, so given these agile practices, and it's not comprehensive, like which ones are you following, right? And which ones are you planning to follow? Uh, and as I learned to rephrase planning to, file, to follow, which ones will you not follow ever? Uh, so you can see, to read this chart for you, basically if you add up the blue and if you want to be optimistic, you add up the green, it shows that like, you know, we all know how to use the right-click button on a mouse, so we do unit testing. No problem. Also refactoring, lots of mousing. Uh, but then it kind of like drops off after there. And you see this with all of the practices that in aggregate, uh, we may say we're doing agile, if, if you remember in the previous chart, but when you actually look at the practices that people follow, it drops off pretty dramatically, considering that we basically have a quarter of century 
all the way from like, if you remember the C2 wiki, right, where there's people like, this stuff works. And now there's academic studies and industry studies. I always find academic studies fraught. Like if you look at the survey respondent, it's, it's like whatever grad students I had that year, uh, which I don't know if is that's representative of how software gets done, but that's fine. Uh, but there's study over study and more importantly, industry validation that actually doing agile software development, I mean, I probably don't need to say this to y'all, is useful and a best practice. But people don't actually follow these practices very much. So that's the first step, not only in forming your team, but that, that I, I see teams going through. And, and I see them going through this because I'll talk with them afterwards and they'll say like, oh yeah, we didn't actually do all these practices. Like, and now that we've started to do these practices, we find that we're more productive, right? Like, which is, you know, an astonishing to be sarcastic about it. Other thing is like, oh, if you follow the best practices, you generally get the best results. Uh, and so... They generally go through, and you see, you see that people follow this, this uh, product mentality of doing things. They, of course, use a lot of uh, test-driven development, which I'm sure, again, everyone here does test-driven development. You have perfect test suites of things. You don't really have any tech debt or legacy code because everything is testable, and you can easily modify something and run comprehensive tests to make sure you haven't broken anything. So you are in the exciting 0.01% of the world who has no technical debt, and you don't even use the word legacy. When you say legacy... You're like, ah, we came here through a series of fantastic options. It's our, it's our heritage, our legacy that we're leaving to our children. Uh, but again, when you talk to your friends, you now understand why they're so upset. Uh, but so you follow these practices. And you know, I'm, I, I emphasize this obvious thing because I see these results that when people actually follow these and they, in a disciplined way, put in things like pair programming, TDD, and they follow what you would expect from agile practices, they're astounded by how productive they are and how much time they end up spending actually coding instead of uh, doing research, as it were, and uh, all sorts of other things. So I want to give you a brief overview uh, of, of a process, at least with people that, uh, that I talk, I mostly talk with people who work with Pivotal, so my observations are from a large part of how they do that. But you see this pop up other places with different words and things. But when you think about, so you have that product team, and they generally follow a pretty disciplined approach to applying that small batch process, right? Which is essentially this part right here. But this is a process that you see repeated in organizations. And there's a few key things as, as the title gets to. One, it's very, what I would say, disciplined. And I use that word. Uh, this doesn't happen so much anymore, but often when you uh, use the phrase agile or DevOps, people are like, oh, that must mean you don't need to like do anything, like need planning, you're crazy. So I always like to use the word disciplined, uh, which means you actually systematically follow something and you stick to it and you, uh, you follow those, those rules. And it's also another thing, I, I, over the years I've always thought that like the, the magic of process improvement is generally changing over to any new process will have a huge uplift in success because it turns out you actually weren't doing anything previously. We have this assumption that you are following something and you're changing from to something, but often it's you're actually just doing something. Anyways, so this is kind of an extension of the small batch process, and the whole team is generally involved in this. And they kind of look at the customer base they have, and they discover what problems they have, and they refine it down. Uh, they further, you know, this whole process is about finding what the problem is, focusing, 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 and scoping down what you're going to do to the, you know, you can think of it as a minimal viable product, but to the minimal amount you need to figure out uh, if you're delivering value, if you're solving people's problems. 
And that, that really is key to what these teams end up doing, is they might start with you know, the whole world of, of everything they might want to do, and they start very small solving just one problem, and they, they, ref, they uh, get good at that, solving that problem, and they build up to another one and another one. And that's where you get to this iterative loop that I was uh, going over, where you're experimenting with something and observing how, how people are using it. So to give you uh, an idea of how that all fits together, uh, this is uh, an example from Home Depot, uh, big, I, I never know what people call it in other countries. We would call it a hardware store. You can get nuts and bolts and washers and flashlights and stuff that I would never use. I don't know how to build anything, not even software anymore. I can do builds in PowerPoint. Uh, did you see that video? It's pretty cool, huh? It like played once and then it stopped. It took me like half a day to figure out. Uh, I could show you that afterwards. Uh, anyways, there's a, there's a couple of scenarios. So Home Depot has this very product mentality thing. In the past year, they even have a, a chief product officer kind of looking, looking over not so much IT, but how software runs their business, right, and how to modify it. So there's a couple of uh, scenarios that they went through, paying attention to that whole customer journey, if you will. What do customers want? What problems do they have? How can we best solve that problem? And it starts with a tremendous amount of uh, observing what customers do. And again, that whole team te tends to be involved because they own the product, right? They're the company, so to speak, solving that problem. So one example, which as with all of these examples, once you kind of go through it, it seems obvious, right? Like I read a history recently of like, why did it take the bicycle so long to be invented? And you know, it starts with like, well, I don't know. This is so obvious, right? Like, why did it take so long? But it took, you know, it started in the late 1700s, and it just took this long series of thinking about the idea and refining it and materials before you finally got to this obvious thing of a bicycle uh, that we enjoy nowadays. And even more boring is like, uh, you know, you got a, as we would say, a washing machine. The thing you stick your laundry in and it gets all wet and sudsy and swirls around, uh, and often. Especially in Texas, we have a dryer. Uh, I don't know if that's good or bad, but we always have two of them. You can choose between gas and electric, all sorts of options, top loading, side loading. So there's all sorts of options to buy a washing machine, and the Home Depot sells this, amongst other stuff. And by observing over some time, by kind of discovering and then framing, what they discovered is people love researching washing machines online, right? And Again, I'm not, I haven't bought a washing machine over here, but people are very, manufacturers are very clever in the, U, in the U.S. They'll have like 10 different washing machines, and they all vary by like, you know, this knob is square, right? Like there's usually very little difference between the washing machines. So you have this huge proliferation of washing machines, and you look at it online, you do all your research, and you're like, I want that washing machine. Uh, and so you would think kind of a naive understanding of retail is like, all right, well, great. Uh, they can just like fill out how they want to pay for it, and then we'll deliver it in like one to 14 days, done. And then, and then we'll even have an installation team to put it in. But it turns out, because they were observing things and running through test of theories, they found out that most people wanted to actually like go touch the washing machine and look at it and, and kind of get a sense of it. I mean, it is this kind of like big thing you're gonna have in your house. Uh, and you probably also want to measure it despite whatever the, the thing online says to see if it fits in there. And so one, that was a big insight they had. It was like, in the majority of the cases, people are going to want to look at it, which makes retailers very excited because they're like, ooh, people still come to the store instead of just buy from Amazon. Uh, so it's thrilling for them uh, that they'll come look at it. Now, the other problem, the next problem in that kind of journey that they were going through, the team discovered is so often, now, this is one of those, uh, Home Depot is a pivotal client. They're an awesome company, so I'm in no way making fun of them in any of them here. Uh, but... 
like all these big box companies, they have a location about every half block, right? So there's all sorts of shops everywhere. Uh, I wouldn't call them shops, warehouses. And oftentimes people would go assuming that thing was there and it wouldn't be there. And so they would get frustrated. And then cleverly, there's a competitor called Lowe's. Lowe's is often right across the street. So you kind of, you know, you would look up research and you would go to the other one. And if they had it, then you were in luck and you would buy it. And really, it's a washing machine. You're not going to get too attached to the person selling it. Hopefully, if you get attached to who you buy your washing machine from, you should look into that. Um, so, so the other feature that they added was like, all right, if someone's found the washing machine they want, what we should do is tell them which store they can go to to actually look at it, so they can actually go touch it and, and do it. And again, this sounds like tediously obvious that you would do this, but each of these things, just like inventing the bicycle we know now, had to systematically be discovered by iteratively coming up with a theory of what people wanted to do, implementing it in the software, and testing out if they were going to do it. So as an even simpler example, of course, like all retailers who have a store, they have an in-store thing. You know, this is, this is like one section of what Home Depot looks like. You know, I enjoy, uh, I learned, my grandfather used to call this uh, when we would go kind of triple the way uh, in the car to go anywhere. He would call that taking the scenic route, uh, as we pronounce it there. And so I have adopted that. I, I don't really like knowing where I'm going, much to my family's consternation. I like just meandering about. Uh, so you can definitely do that in the store, uh, but most people don't like the scenic route. They don't enjoy just like seeing like, ooh, look at these flashlights for a dollar. Um, and so that you have store locators to exactly go to what they want. And uh, that's sort of, again, that is an obvious use case that people clearly want to do, and they have that. But in kind of going in store and studying what customers are doing, right, the, the team actually, go, there's a great video you can see where this, this team of developers and a designer or product manager like, they go talk to people uh, in a store. Um, and what they found is that an extremely common use case. Now, let me, let me explain this a little bit. I'm not sure how it is up here. But uh, living in Europe, we have this phenomena. I, I guess we, it's fun to say we. But there's this phenomena of basically, my understanding, there's, there's two current shortages in Europe. One is a severe napkin shortage, right? They're just like, I don't know what happened. Maybe some ships, like, sank and all the napkins expired. But basically, you're allowed maybe a quarter of a napkin once a day. Uh, not that many napkins. But the other thing there's a severe shortage of is, uh, as y'all would say, uh, loos or WCs or toilets, or as we Americans say, bathrooms. Now, I have no idea why this is, but there's a, currently a war against toilets in Europe. If you want to find a place you're out and about and you want to pee, good luck, right? Like, it's not going to happen. Uh, now, on the other hand, I'm going to blow your mind if you've never been to the States. You can basically go into any building and freely use, as we would call, the bathroom. And they have paper towels. It's insane, uh, oftentimes, and soap. And they're often very pleasant. They don't even harass you about buying something. So Home Depot, uh, like every place, gro let me emphasize, grocery stores, you could go to a stationery shop, post office, you could go to a retailer, definitely restaurants, toy store, anything. You can always use the bathroom. You can tell I've got a very small bladder. Um, but what they found is that when people were in the store, one of the, I'll say, top three use cases is they wanted to know where the bathroom was or the toilet, right? And no one would have really thought about that so much until they talked with people, so I didn't find a picture of that. But in the app, you can find instantly where the bathroom is, uh, which is kind of a, an exciting thing for people like myself. So both of these, and I haven't really mentioned like you know doing the development or deploying or working on your YAML or things like that. Because this, again, is the end goal of what those product teams focus on, right? They observe and talk with people using their code. They write code. They come up with a theory and see if it solves the problem. 
uh, it would be fun to see the uh, feedback from the uh, toilet finding app. That, that might be cool to see how much often people use it and you could optimize ads in there and other evil things. Anyhow, uh, so think about like how do we take that product team, this product mentality, a designer and developers who can actually experiment and take advantage of the nature of agile software to make it do whatever we want, right? And to change it very rapidly and start to actually program the business, if you will. And not only move programming to operations, like if you remember back when uh, the early 2000s, uh, I used to think that Agile took, did this sort of land grab of QA, like we sort of took over QA, and then DevOps kind of had the, a, a, a developer mentality take over operations. And hopefully, at some point, uh, we'll have sort of a development methodology take over the business side and start to actually evolve the business and make it more enjoyable to use, or at least allow me to use the restroom first so uh, I can more leisurely spend time uh, in the hardware store instead of racing through it and find those flashlights. So speaking of, uh, let's next look at the, the last layer, which I like to, to uh, focus on this layer a lot because I find it is the um, uh, least satisfyingly covered uh, of all the layers, right? We spend a lot of time thinking about ourselves uh, but not so much time thinking about the, the dry cleaning people. So let's look at when I've observed large organizations and kind of what goes on, how they are optimizing and how they're changing to be more of a, uh, a product-driven organization. And I'm, I'm going to take a sip of water first. So like I said, uh, I focus a lot on large organizations. I've worked at a startup anywhere from like two people to, um, I don't know, I guess I work at companies that have like thousands of people. But you know, when you've got one team that you always go to lunch together and uh, you know, you, you smell each other every day and you're very intimate, you sort of like build up this, this camaraderie and this ability to put out good code. You have that optimal product team thing, right? Where you have co-ownership uh, of the product and you're solely focused on it and you're focused on the entire business. Maybe even as the CEOs and many of my startups would do worrying about refilling the toilet paper. I'm a little too toilet focused, I guess. Uh, I, I need to. Usually, I talk about food, the the other end of the process. Anyways, if you look at this is this is gathered. There's some great Spotify talks, and I would suggest everyone knows the tribes and bodies of practice, and ma they don't call it a matrix organization, but you know, matrix organizations are great if executed well. Uh, but the later presentations, especially from from this person who is no longer at Spotify, are fun to look at. Um, but this is a chart going over their growth as far as their tech staff, right? And the point is they have, this, they have this rapid growth and they definitely have a lot of problems gardening and sticking to their process and that's why they talk so much about it is because they're constantly working on and refining it. So even at the scale of like 1,600 solar people, you've already got problems like managing this at a, um, dare I use the word enterprise to talk about Spotify at an enterprise level. Uh, and so you, it requires a lot of management and a lot of governance and oversight. And, and you know, that's fun. And then you look at a company like uh, J.P. Morgan Chase, and it's a little hard to find the exact count. There's conflicting things. But I figure the shareholder letter must be uh, at least legally accurate. And you can see that not only they don't have 1,600 people or 10 people, they have around like 40,000 people who write code, right, like globally. And so if you think about like, you know, uh, that's going to be hard to manage. That's a lot of people that need to read that box of O'Reilly books uh, in order to sort of like self-actualize changing into being a, a product sort of mentality. So 
It turns out like management in large organizations and leadership, and as I'll get into a little bit, even enterprise architects are very key to how not only this organization transforms, but how it maintains its ongoing success. So first, let's look at enterprise architects. And the reason uh, I like to go over this, or I shouldn't say like that I feel, well, other than it being good advice, that's always kind of like fifth on my list of why to do anything, uh, but is I... Uh, Oftentimes, uh, over the past couple of years, I would be talking to a smaller set of people and I would go over like, DevOps is awesome and you've got these autonomous product teams. They use microservices where they get to design their own stuff and they do all this. And then I would be getting coffee afterwards and some guy would walk up to me and he'd be like, you know, you were just talking to a room full of enterprise architects. And everyone in that room was thinking, you basically just told me I should go fire myself, right? Like, I have no more work or any value that I bring to this if we've got these completely autonomous operating teams, which uh, back when I was a, a young developer, I would have thought that was awesome. Uh, but, you know, nowadays, that's definitely not my intention to uh, say that the enterprise architects are not needed. And again, it's a matter of scale, just to emphasize this point, right? And, and this is me kind of thinking about that, like, uh, sort of like 17-year-old and 20-year-old developer who used to like laugh at the enterprise architects uh, and what they are doing. But uh, when you realize the scope of just code and systems that you have, uh, you start to think like, whoa, maybe there is an enterprise architect I need. So this is an example uh, from another telco, Comcast, uh, who I believe owns NBC and Universal now, which is exciting. Also another valued Pivotal customer, great company. I don't mean any harm talking about them. Um, but this is basically their entire architecture for their cable TV business, right? You've got uh, the website where you look at your billing and do things. You've got the sales that you need to do. Uh, you essentially have like managing the customers, kind of the centralized, um, what do they call this? Uh, Omni-customer view of everything. You've got the, uh, the phone people that you call up to do things. And then you have even more people who manage truck rolling and all that. It just manages the entire cable business, right? So as you can see, this is a huge system, right? So even the system on own, on its own, definitely my friend of like, you know, 20-year-old uh, developers couldn't really manage this very well. But you can start to see how someone, probably several people need to like be aware of and manage this and think about how it all fits together, you know, enterprise architecture. But even more so, if you're like most organizations, oh, well, not most, but if you're like many large organizations who are large, but also, you know, the, over the past 10 years, like I said, I, I used to work in M&A, so I can't stop paying attention to this. You know, companies like to uh, merge with each other, and especially banks, when a bunch of, like, half of them just kind of um, didn't do well uh, about 10 years ago. And, and what you do in such a cycle is if you are one of the people who survived, you snatch them up. You acquire them so that you can grow your overall uh, presence, your footprints, whatever, which is actually a great strategy. Buy undervalued asset that you can... Uh, you can profit from. But from an IT perspective, if you've bought, like, let's say anywhere from five to 20 different organizations like yours, what that means is your enterprise architecture is now this, right? You have all these different systems that you're supposed to achieve synergies in the business case that justified spending all that money to acquire them. And now you need to figure out how to integrate all this stuff together. And again, this is a job that only someone with a high level view, an enterprise architect, using many of the same tools that they used to have, uh, are really set to do. And so, again, the, the thing here is that, like, it's easy to think that with these autonomous teams, enterprise architects aren't needed anymore because all these people, all these little white boxes in here are going to magically coordinate with each other and, you know, I don't know, microservices. Uh, and that will just all work. 
but clearly, that's not really the way uh, that things uh, operate in, in the large world. Now, the next thing that I see enterprise architects doing uh, is, it's kind of coincidence they're all wearing this, the same shirt here. Um, but if you think about the way that organization is laid out, we're going to move from a siloed organization to product teams. And these product teams are divided up by application. Like, the next question you should be thinking is like, well, how do you determine that? Like, who knows what all the products are and how we could divide it up and how this organization works well? What are the, you know, if you do your, uh, you know, your bounded context and your, your domains and all this kind of stuff, there's all sorts of ways of breaking it up. That was a um, uh, sort of an event stream to kind of suss out what the business is and how things are satisfied. And then you have these kind of general domains that, that those people were uh, figuring out. But that kind of work, again, at the scale of an organization, tends to be something that those little, each development team can't do on their own, each product team, but you need, again, that role of the overarching macro-focused enterprise architect to focus on it, which indeed is what I see enterprise architect uh, people doing. And as a side note, a lot of the times when I find these types of roles who are doing this, the first thing they tell me is like, yes, I do enterprise architecture, and if you will, please never say that that's what I do again. Right? Like they don't want people to like use that title for what they're doing for whatever reason. So that's another thing. People tend to not like that title. And as a few more things, and again, if you get that book, you can read more details on this. But part of what enterprise architects also tend to do is instead of having manual governance reviews to make sure you're following processes and doing things, they tend to automate that into the platform and into your build pipelines, right? So there are there is a lot of work going on in ensuring that like you know you're using this framework and not that one. And in the same way that your operations team likes to remove toil, EAs also tend to focus on uh, removing the toil of doing governance and just automating it for you, which again gets you to that having more free time and self-service uh, usage of things. And as another side note, and these people in particular don't like to be called enterprise architects. Those platform as a product people, every now and then an enterprise architect finds themselves being the product manager for it. And if you think about it, to in some cases, if you remember those old enterprise architecture diagrams, the, the, the sad tale of the EA is they never actually get to implement them. They just diagram them out. But if they actually run that platform, they get to implement that, uh, that architecture. And many EAs used to be developers and maybe haven't developed in a long time. And usually what you find is like they like developing again. But... That doesn't happen in many cases, but it's also another role that you see EAs taking on is that platform becomes the, the actual living enterprise architecture that they have. And then as I joked about earlier, there still needs to be a tremendous amount of effort put into managing the technical debt that you have, right? And there's another clever idea going around that all code is technical debt, which, which is fun and uh, has some sort of operational thinking behind it. But someone does need to sort of like if not quantify, think about how much technical debt you want and when you need to uh, pull that, that cord to kind of stop the process because if you add more code, you add more debt, you take more shortcuts, you'll never be able to evolve your code fast enough. And I don't think anyone's ever going to solve this problem, but that's clearly a job that someone like an enterprise architect needs to focus on. Now, you could be snarky and say, like, that's always been an enterprise architect's job, so the fact that we have it suggests maybe we need new EAs. But... It's more of the, the, the point of saying that, that it continues to be a huge focus of what organizations need to do, and uh, EAs tend to uh, be the right ones to do it. So now let's wrap up by looking at the, the, the managers. And by managers, I mean not so much team managers, but more uh, higher-up level people who uh, they always like to call themselves vice presidents or senior vice presidents. 
I never really know what the distinction is. You don't hear the phrase junior vice president anymore. That's kind of like a 50s thing. At least I don't hear it. Uh, sometimes like, you know, CIO level people, but the leadership of the organization and their role in doing things and how that role tends to change quite a bit too. Because, um, you know, to put it in a cartoonish way, to exaggerate, to make a point, these leaders, a lot of what they end up doing is being very like uh, encouraging and enthusiastic. They have an all hands or a town hall at the beginning of the year, tell you like the priorities and what should happen. And then, uh, you know, you see them again next year. Uh, and really, they do have meetings that roll up, and they have, they have these, like, what I, I like to think of as uh, Christmas tree meetings, where they've got this big spreadsheet on, on the, the, the wall, and everything is either uh, green, yellow, or red. And uh, all that ends up happening is they discuss the reds and, and why, that, uh, why they're wrong and what they can do, which is kind of depressing. They never get to talk about the greens and, like, here's the stuff going well. They just talk about things that are on fire all the time. So you still got to manage the... Uh, the uh, the colored lights, as it were. But there's a lot of different things, again, applying this project mentality that you'll see that apply to the, the management leadership level. So first, just to emphasize it, this is a quote from, coincidentally, another telco. I don't know why that is. Uh, like, seriously, just odd coincidence. But it's a, it's a good way of putting it that, like, in, in, with T-Mobile, and this is T-Mobile USA, my German friends always tell me I need to specify T-Mobile USA, otherwise bad things will happen. Uh, but this is T-Mobile USA, and they've been working on this for about three years or so. And if you do, you know, go talk to their executives and see them talking. They not only like know how to talk about this, but they can tell you stories of being intimately involved in it and changing their organization around. So that's the first thing is to start thinking about how do I program my organization? Because that's a large part of what leadership stuff is, right? Their code is the organization, how it's arranged, how it's incented, what jobs there are how it executes in the same way that as developers we can what we have is code what or what leaders have managers have is basically the organization and cash to pay out to people uh, and those are kind of the only levers other than talking about things uh, and you know morale and trying to motivate people um, so the first thing speaking of motivating people and this is if if you were in this room earlier from my uh, my fellow texan uh, you know, you heard an emphasis that having a crisp, clear vision uh, is important. And, uh, you know, I, I didn't have this in here originally, but when, when she mentioned that, I put this in here because I think, I think that is definitely true, right? Like, now, I don't know about you, uh, but something that really stirs me to action is to know that, you know, my organization is focused on, you know, uh, customer value, shareholder returns, and the uh, betterment of the lives of the employees, which is basically like, well, you, uh, good, Right? Like, that's sort of like the basis of, of any organization. Uh, but, you know, more precisely, what, you, what a leader, what the strategy team, the leadership team needs to really figure out is if we were to give you a very short line about what our point is, what our vision is, like, could you actually kind of figure out what to do about that? And this is a good example from a Singapore bank, uh, DBS. Uh, and, uh, you know, you can read through it. But it's this last part that I really like, right? Like, our goal is for you to live more and bank less. And if you think about it, so what they mean is, like, we want uh, banking with us, doing whatever you're doing to be as efficient as possible, to allow you to move quickly and not have to, like, mess around with it. So it needs to, we need to make sure that uh, it's optimized, right? We need to go through that small batch loop and figure out the best things that need to happen. Because I don't know about you, but when I'm done with this talk, I'm not really going to, like, log into my bank and just kind of, like, hang out with it, right? Like, on Friday nights when I was a teenager, I used to, like, hang out with Windows and open up INI files and change it to, like, tartan backgrounds and things like that. And I don't, uh, 
probably explains a lot of my early years. Uh, but, you know, no one does that very rare, unless you're an accountant with banking. Like, no one goes and says, like, I wonder how long I can make this zip code in the bill pay field. Uh, like, there's no exploration. Instead, you know, this is a very actionable vision, in so much as it's concise, of what the goal of DBS is. So that's the first thing that leadership can really focus on, is orienting people around uh, what that vision is. And, and I'll kind of rapidly go through some work about strategy uh, at the end. So, like I mentioned, one of the main tools, if not arguably the main tool that, that a manager has, company management has, to, to fix the organization and get, well, I shouldn't say fix, to transform the organization and improve how they do their software, is the structure of the organization, right? You can almost think of it as like, uh, you know, like the phrase waterfall, Conway's law gets like blown out and overused, so you gotta like lowercase it to sort of mean the general logical notion of it. But there's almost like an NBA use of Conway's law that the structure of your organization is going to match and then produce the structure of your business, right? Uh, which I've definitely have seen over the years. So this is from the very recent uh, DevOps uh, report. And this is another chart that even I find kind of difficult to read, but I didn't have, as they say, time to make it easy. Um, but if you read the report, what it goes over, and this is kind of summarized here, is that these are a couple of ways that organizations in their survey base have focused on restructuring the organization, ways of transforming. Now, some of these are like training center and center of excellence, kind of centralized things that go over doing stuff. But what it found is that there's a few things of the high performers, which is a DevOps report categorization of like what you should do. Uh, like focus on a couple of, of things uh, mostly. And that is, this is from kind of like the Spotify model of having communities of practice. So finding the kind of, uh, what way is this? Horizontal, uh, like people who do the same thing and having them talk and learn from each other frequently. Um, and then uh, these proofs of concept sort of things where what you're doing is working on actual projects, right? So if you think about the uh, the toilet finder, uh, or, or kind of that washing machine thing. That would be an early sort of proof of concept of an application you would have. And also figuring out the platform is an early proof of concept. And as those teams are figuring out new ways of doing things, you essentially clone them, right? So you say, this team did things well, and what we're going to do is we're going to take that same model and apply it to another team. And what you also might do, the seeding part, is we're going to take uh, three people from that team and put them on this new team to basically seed the way this team does. And, and you tend to see that. I see that repeated over and over again where uh, a lot of what I see on teams are people do pair programming and they'll rotate between people so they spread knowledge. But you can also think about rotating people across teams so that they not only learn from each other, but they have a trusted source uh, for saying they should do some new practice or operate some way. Like, you know, you should probably not trust most of what I say because I get paid by a vendor, but hopefully you trust your, uh, your colleagues. Uh, and if not, uh, one of my recruiting friends is here. You can come work at Pivotal if, if you don't have a, a good trusting place to work. Uh, unless you're a Pivotal customer, then you need to wait a little while. Also, we have a good referral bonus thing. Uh, you get to stay there 90 days, and then I'll get a payout and buy you some dinner. Day 91, do whatever you want. I don't care. That, hopefully you didn't hear that. Uh, anyways, uh, so those are some structures that you can start looking at, uh, is thinking how to clone teams and how to seed them, because they tend to, to uh, work much better than the other processes of doing big bang approach, like we're going to do everything at once, or uh, sending people to training centers and having them come back. Now, I want to detail something that I see in particular with a lot of organizations, is that not only do they have clones and templates, but they actually set up a... Um, 
to use, a, I think this is the, the right use of it, a, a logical organization. So it's not necessarily a separate legal entity, but it's actually a new organization. And it has new governance and new ways of doing things. And they start to selectively move teams over to that new organization from the existing one. And you, you might think of it as bimodal IT, which, you know, in the agile and DevOps world is this this bad mojo of something. Uh, but, like, it's more of, like, if you think here's your existing organization, you start to level it out and transform it in this way. And I see this happening over and over again, where everything down to, like, the color of the desk that you use becomes key to success, right? Like... By the way, if you're not using pale wood in your offices, just stop everything and go to Ikea and buy a bunch of pale wooden desks. Because dark wood desks, failure. Uh, you're going to need some pale wood desks. That's what my anecdotal research shows. But you see people setting up these separate organizations, and here's some samples of people doing it. And they end up having their own sort of branding and culture and ways of, of going about doing things. So... Uh, there's only a few minutes left. I want to close out with just a few other managerial tactics, uh, and then I'll give you a little preview of the uh, the work that I've been doing in the uh, the new book that I have. So this is kind of starting to think about, again, from a leadership perspective. One of the things you do is you set the priorities and you set the agenda for what you're working on. But you also set expectations about how does work proceed, right? And typically in large organizations... Uh, work is done on kind of an annual cycle, right? So you do everything, and um, this this next thing is a little bit of what I'm one of the things I'm figuring out with the uh, the business bottleneck work. The way that planning and finance works is every year, whatever your fiscal year is, which is confusing. Uh, if someone has a different fiscal year, that basically just means you don't have to work over the holidays in December. Hopefully, is how they've oriented that. Um, but you generally get funding on a 12-month uh, on, on cycle, which means at the beginning of the 12 months, you have to kind of like know what you're going to do, and you set expectations for what success is. And after that 12 months, people are going to check in and see if you had success or not, and we're back to the waterfall iron triangle problem. Um, but if you really, my, it's been my experience that like it's actually an 18-month cycle, because that's just 12 months is just when your, your budget is approved and when your plan is approved. And you needed like half a year before that to think about what to do. And, you know, you got to go have all these, uh, you know, the phrase pre-wiring. You got to go have a bunch of meetings for meetings and you iterate two things and make sure that person over there gets what they want. And you make sure that person's on vacation when you have the big meeting. And you do all this scheming and PowerPoints and all this kind of stuff. Uh, as, as you can see from my slides, I follow this uh, you know, I, I know that people love the six-page memo, but I follow this principle I learned in corporate America that every presentation should be a Word document just accidentally printed in landscape. Uh, and so, you know, you got to do a lot of that sort of work. Uh, so actually, you're looking at more of an 18-month cycle or lead time, if you will, uh, to basically go through the whole cycle of doing things, which is a tremendously long cycle. So one of the things that management can do is to work with finance and other organizations to as this is kind of an older case of Allianz doing this, but they've actually figured out a way to get do, going through the cycle in about a hundred days, right? So they it's and you can think of it as kind of like an internal incubation process or whatever. But a large part of what leadership does is makes it normal to operate on a much smaller chunk of funding, a much smaller uh, chunk of um, authority to do things on their own. But then also at the end of that gate, setting up metrics as as you would imagine, going through a small batch process to see if we should pursue this further. Now, my theory is that when it comes to strategy and finance, uh, to, and I'll, I'll skip over those summaries of it to, for, for time, uh, is essentially that it's a little weird for a strategy and finance person to understand that you're not going to operate on a 12-month cycle just because that's not how they think. Um, it's kind of like when I moved over to Europe and uh, like there's no bathrooms anywhere. 
but you know, I've formed my whole life around that, apparently. Uh, but anyways, uh, so it takes a lot of convincing, and you have to kind of sell that idea to the rest of the organization. Now, in finance and strategy, what you're trying to avoid, especially in finance, is like wasting money, right? Like that's your job in finance is to make sure the company spends money responsibly, uh, which often means spending less money. Uh, but if you think about the validation that you get going through this cycle, right? Like that idea is good, that idea is bad, so forth and so on. The, the finance and strategy people actually can reduce the risk that they have if they kind of have these smaller cycles of financing, which heretofore is very difficult to get across. But theoretically, that's something that I've seen some finance people, as we would say in Texas, cotton to. That they kind of get that that would be the way you want to do stuff. And a lot of what leadership does also is they might ch- take a big chunk of corporate funding and kind of carve it out into gated funding over the year to kind of direct what they're doing. But, you know, people in the strategy world, the idea that we could change our strategy every three to six months is a little scary, but then what you realize is that raises your chance of success instead of, uh, you know, I, I, was, I was once working on a strategy at one company and it didn't work after a couple of years because we didn't really test it too much. And I had to like, because I was a manager, I had to lay off like 11 people I'd never met in a room. So like, it would have been cooler to have a small cycle to validate what we were doing. Uh, HR didn't like it when I deviated from the script to be human, speaking of like DevOps stuff. But what are you going to do? Good times. Uh, so uh, I think the last thing that I'll leave you with, um, and, and you, can, you can check out uh, for some more detail on finance and strategy and kind of the theories I've been trying to figure out there, is how, how you get started with this. And you can kind of draw this out from uh, some of the stories and, and whatnot I've been telling you. But the thing I like to emphasize with people, especially at a large enterprise level, is that you think about like the smallest you're comfortable starting and maybe start 25% smaller than that, right? Like oftentimes, uh, speaking of finance, when you make a business case and you ask for authority to change something, you need to have a huge payout. Otherwise, you should not do something to take on all that risk. So you start to build up this business case and eventually you're like, what we're going to do is rebuild the dot-com site and in 12 months, we're going to increase revenues by 300% or something absurd like that. So you don't want to tackle the biggest best, most profitable, or uh, thorniest problem that you have. And instead, you want to start small with something. And just to use, uh, again, uh, you know, a Home Depot example, like, you know, they, they started with uh, a tool rental business and a custom paint ma- matching thing and, you know, washing machines. And they slowly built up as they learned and got respect and trusted what they're doing to more and more. And as an example, another one that I see a lot of organizations uh, starting with very frequently is uh, a store finder app. So they might have like a brand new way, uh, you know, they want to do things in this product-oriented way, they want to run it on new infrastructure, they want to follow new practices. Um, And especially over here, uh, you know, the first thing you're going to encounter is like the database. It's always, you know, the database. And then you have all the the sort of compliance and governance and stuff over customer data. And then also like scaling like a transactional system is hard. So that's a big problem to try to solve for your first projects. But if you think about a StoreFinder app, it's actually a real application that people use, so it's business-facing. It has like virtually, in fact, it has no customer data in it, and you very rarely update it, right? So it's actually the perfect kind of little application to start to learn how to do something new and build up trust and kind of fame in what you're doing. And uh, when, once you also build up a series of five to ten successes, you can take those stories of success and start to sell it to the rest of the organization and validate yourself you know, again, instead of having someone else tell you that it's great, but you're self-validating that this is a good idea. Uh, and, and also, if you have any, because you start small, if any of your projects fail, just pretend like they never happened. 
you only ever talk about the, uh, the successful projects when you're trying to like change the entire organization. So with that, let me just skip over these slides. Look, more charts. Uh, but um, if you want to get more detail uh, into things that I went over, and, and my, my generally, and I don't mean this in a boasty way, my style of writing is very case study intensive and um, talking about what organizations have done instead of what I think is a good idea, although I do a lot of that too. Uh, but you can kind of dig into that book. It's only about, I don't know, 80 pages. So if you find yourself having trouble going to sleep at night, it's fantastic at that. I don't want to make any guarantee, but I think maybe five minutes is the max that you'll need to consult it. Uh, and there's also a couple of other recorded presentations on various parts of it, on uh, a lot more on whatever DevOps culture is and enterprise architects. And then um, I realize you can't click on it here unless you know something I don't. Uh, but if you get these slides, which are I just posted on my Pivotal, uh, my, not my, that's my email address, but on my Twitter account, there's a, a Word doc where you can go see me working on uh, that book, which again talks a lot more about uh, strategy and finance and all that kind of stuff. So with that, uh, thanks for uh, listening in and everything, and I'll, I'll hang out a little bit afterwards if there's any questions. And now, now I'll release the class here. Thank you.